Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello again, and thank you for listening. This is episode number 37 of The Next Track, and today we are going to get our geek on with our guest, Rob Griffiths. Rob, it's great to have you with us, and because I can actually see you, it's good to see you. Hey, Doug. Great to see you again. Kirk, nice to be... I'd say back, but I haven't been here before, so I guess it's just nice to be here. But we've done the same thing on another podcast, so it very much feels like deja vu all over again. We have, and so so this is a chance to plug the other podcast where Rob and I are co-hosts. It's called The Committed. There'll be a link in the show notes. Rob and me and Ian Shrey talk about technology, mostly Apple stuff. So on the next track, we talk about music. We talk about how people listen to music and the kind of music they like listening to. But I'm sure a lot of our listeners have very large video libraries as well. I know I do. Doug, you've got lots of videos. Rob obviously has lots of videos, and that's why you're here. Because you have an obsessive way of ripping your DVDs and Blu-ray discs. And I thought it would be interesting to discuss this. First of all, why do you insist on ripping everything? Well, I, I, I got to go back to the sort of the, the 50,000 foot level. I, I don't mind buying streaming video from iTunes and Amazon. I prefer not to simply because I, I like the, the sense that I know you can't own a video. You're still licensing it. But if I buy the DVD or I buy the Blu-ray, nobody can turn off a server and prevent me from ever seeing it again. Or the agreement between Universal and Apple can't expire and my movie is suddenly deleted from my library. So <clears throat> there's a sense that if I'm paying for something, I like the tangible nature of something that's not connected to a server that would make it unusable if a company went out of business. Not that Apple would go to business, but who knows what happens going forward. So And, and part of that, yeah, I'm an old guy. So I'm old school and I like, I, I, there's something about the physical media I like too. I mean, cover art is still kind of cool to look at. So I tend to buy uh, physical media. I do buy online if, uh, like West Wing is a great example. It's the only way to get it HD. So I bought West Wing from iTunes um, and I just, hope that they never have a fight and it disappears from my library because it's a great show. But anyway, so that's why I tend to rip because I wind up with a bunch of physical media, but I still do like to be able to watch them on an Apple TV or an iPad or take them with me on my Mac if I go for a trip somewhere. So I wind up taking my originals and turning them into uh, electronic versions. Now, obviously with newer stuff, uh, a lot of them come thankfully with a coupon inside the box where you enter a code and you get an iTunes download uh, and that's good. Some come with a code that only gets you, uh, what was the name of that terrible service uh guy i can't remember uh it was a competitor it was supposed to be a competitor to itunes it hasn't done very well and it's no longer thankfully exclusive but it was this horrendous horrendous service with like it was three studios got together and it required logging in on two separate sites to get your download it was just it was ugly um so if there's a download code i'll, I'll use it and tend not to rip the movie because that'll meet my needs for getting stuff on different things but uh for some of the older stuff i own and if i buy a newer thing that only comes with a, a non-itunes copy i will rip it myself that, that's interesting i don't buy a lot of dvds and blu-rays but the ones I do buy certainly do not come with download codes. In fact, only once in my life have I bought a Blu-ray disc that came with a download code. It was Avatar, and that shows how long ago it was, and the download code didn't work, <laughs> which wasn't a big deal because it was a crappy movie anyway, so I didn't really care. Hey, it was a fun movie. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, like uh, just the other day, we bought, if you haven't seen this, a plug for a movie. It's Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. It's sort of a kid's movie, but it's by Tim Burton. So if you like Tim Burton's stuff, it's very well done. It's very dark kids movie so that, that literally just came out in cinemas here oh really <laughs> uh, i believe just before christmas yeah 
yeah, it's fairly recent. Um, but yeah, this had the Blu-ray, the DVD, and the digital HD for, I think, 18 bucks at Costco. So <laughs> I had my bases covered. Um, and it's, it's a very fun movie. But the main reason I bought this, not to go too far off the subject, but it's got two hours of the special effects, like behind the scenes of all the things they did. And there's some pretty wild visual effects. So very cool disc. Anyway. Just in general about DVDs and Blu-rays, do you find you get more in, more... Is there more stuff on, on disc rather than what's available for download and, and streaming? It can depend. Um, you know, iTunes, sometimes there's actually more on iTunes because they have these special iTunes extras agreements. So so I, I have a couple things I've bought because they had iTunes extras that actually weren't even on the, the DVDs or the Blu-rays. Um, one of the nice things about Blu-rays is you can sometimes make a, a choice between whether you want to pay for the the set that's got all the extras or you just want the movie and you get it for a few bucks cheaper. Um, typically I've found there, there's a good mix of extras on the iTunes, most of the iTunes stuff. And that's where I think I've only bought like two things from Amazon video. And I honestly don't remember if they had extras or not, but iTunes usually has a pretty good selection that mostly matches what's on a, a Blu-ray. Um, I, I, there's something about and it's odd too. I don't tend to rip all the extras. I like, navigating the menu structure to get to the extras. It's laid out in a nice logical structure. So you can go, I want all the interviews with the actors or I want the special effects, you know. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you mentioned it. I hadn't thought about it until now, until you mentioned it, but I kind of like messing around with the menus on, on those discs. I mean, they're usually very well laid out. They're hierarchical, they're logical. Right. You know, it's funny. Yeah, I used to try to rip it all and I found I just wasn't watching it. Or if I'd watch it, it'd be like, no, what? Because you're missing all the titles. It's like, what am I watching? Oh, this is obviously an interview with an actor. Or, or you'd watch one, it's like, okay, they're not saying anything. Oh, this must be a voiceover track where I'm supposed to be watching the movie and listening at the same time. So now I, I basically, now I rip the movie and the soundtrack and I, I leave all the rest and I watch those on the big screen or wherever else. Just two comments. One is I find it interesting that more and more, and I don't buy a lot of DVDs and Blu-rays, but I do notice on Amazon that more and more of them include the DVD and the Blu-ray in the same box as the one that you've just said. And I guess it makes sense as far as inventory is concerned. Why have two things to keep in stock instead of one? And this way you've covered people regardless of which device they have. If someone buys the one and makes a mistake and has to return it because it's a DVD and not a Blu-ray or vice versa, there you know, it just costs money. It has a side benefit for a parent, which I didn't really realize. Uh, I take the DVD out. I put it in a little plastic case for kids' movies, and I put it in the kids' room. Because I don't care if they get fingerprints. I don't care if it snaps in half. Um, I've got the Blu-ray, and I have it ripped. But, yeah, it's great. So uh, this one, I took the DVD out. It's sitting in the kids' room. They can watch it whenever they want to, and I don't have to worry about fingerprints. Well, there were fingerprints on this one, but I think they might have been mine um, on the disc. Well, I was actually going to mention that. So you do have two young children, one ten and one thirteen, and I thought one of the reasons you might want to rip all these discs is so that they can watch them without having to manipulate the the physical discs. Well, when they were when they were much younger, I did it that way. Um, now, but now it's it's just simpler. They have a drawer full of DVDs, and if they want to watch something, they can throw it in if they want to. They're also on the Apple TV, and they're pretty good about going through the Apple TV. Well, that's what I thought that they would watch all your rips on the Apple TV and not even have to worry about discs. Yeah, we had a problem with that the other night, and actually, I was talking to Kirk about it. I was trying. They wanted to watch some of the Star Wars movies, and uh, two of the th for whatever reason, I, I must not have raised her right. My youngest wanted to watch the the new. Th first three, if you will, the three that took place before episode four, which was the first original number one. For critical purposes, probably. Probably, right. Yeah, she wanted to rip on Jar Jar or something. But um, the one she wanted to watch, Attack of the Clones, was not showing up in the list. I'm like, and I went to my computer and it was sitting here. I'm like, why isn't that showing up? And Kirk finally pointed out I had probably set, and I did, uh, parental restrictions at PG-13, and that Attack of the Clones was PG-13. So a little technical, self-induced self well, technical Jar Jar issue. Binks is a pretty hardcore guy. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't want kids seeing that. I mean, he could he could traumatize a whole generation. Uh, he already has. <laughs> 
So let, let's get to your article. Basically, what you do is you explain the process. Now, he, here's why it's complicated. You can rip DVDs relatively easily. There are tools. Handbrake is a free app, and we'll mention, we'll talk about that later. But with Blu-rays, it's a little bit different. Handbrake can't rip Blu-rays. Both these types of discs have copy protection on them. And while this is not legal, according to the Digital Copyright Millennium Act of the United States, many people do consider that it is fair use that you can make a backup copy of your disc. And I mean, your case is a perfect example. You rip the disc so it's easier to view it in different situations and you save the original disc as your archival copy. And, and that makes sense. But for Blu-rays, it's different. Handbrake can't do this directly. And this is why it gets complicated. So we're, we're going to walk through the five or six different steps in the article. And you're going to just say what we need to know if you want to rip Blu-rays. So step one is buy some hardware. Right. You need to have, a obviously, a Blu-ray player of some sort. Um, now, if you do it right, you could actually use Blu-ray discs to store data on your Mac, too. Has anyone in history ever done that? I was going to say, I have never done it. I know they sell them. They're ridiculously expensive. They're fairly slow. So I don't... Just buy a hard drive. You'll save yourself time and money and buy three hard drives, buy four hard drives. Anyway, um, I use a Pioneer BDR XD05S. Actually, I think I have one before that, but they're, all, they're about 90 to 100 bucks, depending on when you buy them. Uh, and there are other brands. So if you just go to Amazon and look for Mac compatible Blu-ray, you'll find them. Do make sure you get something that supports the Mac, because if you do have a problem later, you may not be able to get a refund. So um, this particular um, Blu-ray player, the Pioneer, works fine. I think I've had mine for three or four years. Yeah, I've had mine for quite a while. I, I originally wrote about this a few years ago, in fact. I don't know, it's got to be at least four years, I would guess, uh, and updated it last year. Yeah, and it's it's been a workhorse, and, and I've ripped a lot of CDs on it and DVDs. So, yes, also know that this is an optical drive that, uh, as with optical drives throughout history, they've always been backwards compatible with the lower quality discs. So DVD drives can also read CDs. Blu-ray drives can also read DVDs and CDs. Another nice thing about it is that it's bus powered. So you can plug it into your laptop. You don't need a power brick. You just plug in a USB 3 cable and off it goes. Yes. One less cable. We like that. One less cable. So step two is software. Now you can't watch a Blu-ray disc on a Mac. There's no native Blu-ray support. There never has been. There probably never will be. So what kind of software do we need? You know, I think there's like a choice of, is it one? It might be one or, or one uh, app available called uh, Mac Go Blu-ray Player if you want to watch movies. It's about 40 bucks. It might list at 60 or 70. Um, if you watch like the bundle sales, this thing winds up in bundles fairly regularly. So keep your eye out for a bundle sale. I, I, it's not great software. It's really not. It's got a horrendously 3D in-your-face GUI kind of interface that harkens back to 10.0, uh, but it works. Um, I uh, although annoyingly, like I was, I was, I'm doing something else with Blu-rays. It's not quite done yet, but I wanted to get to a specific frame in the video, and you cannot skip a single frame in the Mac. Uh, go Blu-ray player. The the advanced mode jumps a chapter at a time and the arrow keys do nothing. And if you hit play pause, it goes about three frames at a time. So it was really tricky getting a specific frame out of the video. There are a couple of different apps, but they're all exactly the same app with different names made by a Chinese company. Right. But yeah, all you can really do with that is watch a Blu-ray from beginning to end. So then step two is you need to find a way to get the data from the disk into your Mac in a decrypt decrypted form. And that involves a couple of different steps. Um, you first, you regardless which way you finally go, you will need a program called Make MKV. Um, it lists for $50. It's been in beta since 
2000 BC or so. It's it's a perpetual beta. So what that means is really, um, if you use it, and you, I, I've paid for it because obviously I use it a ton. But if you don't want to pay for it, what will happen is that every n number of months the beta will expire and you'll have to go find a new key which is always posted in the forums you get the key and then it works for a few more months and this process continues so uh if you want to buy it it's 50 bucks you can use it free as it's been beta and i keep keep thinking it's going to ship but he went through version 1.0 and never shipped so i i don't know maybe it's a legal loophole where he says if it's beta he can't be sued for because what's in this software is basically um it's it's the decryption keys for blu-ray discs and those are not legal to, to really distribute. So it's a very gray area. No, it's a black and white area. It's not legal to do what he's doing. So. But isn't that what Handbrake does as well? Um, Handbrake does not have any decryption keys for Blu-rays. It has DVD, but the DVD keys... But for DVDs, I mean. Right. The DVD keys were broken so many years ago and were apparently not as um, secure in the first place as Blu-ray keys. So apparently it's a whole other level of security. And um, yeah, this one's really marginal, but you definitely have to have it. And what Make MKV does is it basically just lets you copy what's on the Blu-ray onto your hard drive without the encryption. Um, at that point, you will have a massively huge file, 40 to 60 gigabytes of data uh, from your Blu-ray. You could, in theory, there are MKV players. You could just watch that. That The Blu-ray player we talked about will play the MKV file. Or even VLC, the free um, VLC, which can play almost any video format, is, is definitely, if you're into video, that's a, an, an important tool to have. Yeah, but you really don't want to lug around 40 gigabytes of data for every single movie you're going to rip because... Even though hard drives are cheap, that would be a lot of hard drives. So when you're ripping the MKV from the disc, you first want to check a few things, right? You don't want to necessarily rip everything on the disc. Well, that sort of depends. There are there is sort of I would just the, the article I wrote sort of describes what I would call the hard way of ripping uh, a Blu-ray, but it, it's faster and it gives you more control of the process. In the easy way, you can just there's a one button in M Make MKV that's create a backup, and if you click that, it will essentially copy the entire drive, the entire movie to your hard drive in a folder, and you can use that with the other tool we're going to talk about, and it will process that whole folder. Um, the second way to do it is to choose, uh, you actually go into the Blu-ray disc, you open it up and make MKV, and you basically, what you'll find on a Blu-ray is like anywhere from 10 to 20 different video files and 40 to 800 audio files because there'll be an audio file for various formats, there'll be different language audio files, there'll be subtitle files, there'll be the original video, there'll be a music video, there'll be all the behind the scenes videos. So the, the article I wrote talks about going into the, to M make MKV, you, you basically go into what looks like Windows File Explorer from Windows 3.1, um, and you, you select a video track and an audio track and copy just those two files to one file on your hard drive. It basically, it takes the audio and the video together and mashes them into one MKV file on your hard drive. And the, the process I write about then takes that MKV file and processes it. So there's really two different ways to proceed. The easy way is to just back up the thing and use this other tool or the way I write about it. Right. And, and so in the second way, the more complicated way, what's actually useful is, is that you can choose to exclude all the audio tracks. Now, in the example you give it, there's only English, there's stereo and there's surround. But a lot of movies you buy are going to have 15 or 20 languages on them. This will mean that it'll be less storage in between when you make this big MKV file in between this step and the next step, there'll be less storage. It's probably a little bit easier in the long term, and it'll be, take less time to rip to your computer. And also, you can exclude all of the extras and bonus things and, and things like that. So it, it can make it easier to manage, I think, if you do that. 
Right. And my article was basically written about what's the fastest, most efficient way to get stuff from a disk into your computer in a format you can view. And the way I do it, it takes a little more work up front, but it definitely is faster and more efficient than the other method. But the other method is clearly easier because you can be done in, what, two button clicks, essentially. So, But we'll talk about that. But on the other hand, ripping a Blu-ray using the optical drive that we have, the Pioneer, roughly rips it in real time. In other words, a three-hour film takes about three hours to rip if right. you do the whole disk. Yep. It's it's not it's not something you're going to do in 20 minutes either way. <laughs> it's it's not like ripping CDs where you put one in and it spit it out. This is a, a long process. If you're going to try and rip your entire collection, you know, let's say you've got a big collection now and say all of a sudden, oh, I'm going to rip my whole collection. Uh, you need to plan a few months. You need right. to take a sabbatical <laughs> to do that if you have a lot of movies. And, and both of these, uh, both methods do support batch processing. So you can essentially copy a whole bunch to your hard drive and then run a batch to, to like process them overnight. But yeah, even overnight, you're only going to get done, what, like uh, four or five movies at best, depending on how long you sleep. So Well, that's that's the, the conversion right. part. It's the ripping the disc that you can't batch. So that you're stuck with having to be in front of your computer. So stage four is converting this MKV file into a file that you can use easily. Now, as you said earlier, you can use the MKV file. If it's on your computer, you can use VLC to watch it. And if you've got the storage, it's not a problem. A file that size, however, probably wouldn't stream very well over your home network. Let's say you're using Plex or you're streaming from, you know, one computer to another. And again, they're quite large. So this next step is to make a smaller file. Right. So we talked about two ways to convert them. In the article, I talked about using something called Transcode Video, which I'll come back to. I'll just quickly talk about the easy way, which is you use Handbrake, which is a, a GUI app. And it's, as Kirk mentioned, it can actually rip DVDs in, even in their encrypted form. But it will also process the MKV file. You, tell, you load it up. You choose which uh, quality and speed setting you want to go. And you hit go and off it runs. Um, and it works fine. The What I got interested in was a, a guy named Don Melton who used to work for Apple, uh, had a fairly high-level role at Apple, actually, high enough that he retired early, <laughs> um, came out with something called Transcode Video. And it's essentially a set of command line tools that are written in Python, which is a scripting programming language in, in on the Unix side of OS X, Mac OS, um, that work with Handbrake. He hasn't essentially, he has not created new methods of encoding these files. He has taken tools that exist and figured out ways to make them work well, such that you as a user don't really need to know all that much about what's going on behind the scenes. So you have to install Transcode Video it's a package, um, and I've written another article, which will be linked in the show notes, that walks you through that. It is not like installing a GUI app, I will tell you that. It, it takes some time. It's not overly complicated, but you have to follow a set of instructions in Terminal, and I tried to write them for anyone to use. Now, to be fair, it's not that complicated. Yeah. Once you get the hang of using Terminal, Rob's article explains exactly which commands you have to type. In fact, you can even copy and paste them just by changing the file names and the paths and all that. But to be clear, that's for the, that's for the installation of the tools you need. Once they're installed, it's still command line, it's still typing, but it's one line of text with three or four words on it, and you hit return, and then it's just like handbrake, it's off and running, and you wait a few hours. Um, so you, you get transcode video installed, and then basically you... Um, you CD, which is change directory, CD, change directory, to the folder that holds the video file you've ripped, which is the, the finder equivalent of double-clicking a folder. Uh, and then once you're in there, you just ex execute a command, like, for example, transcode-video-quick, which says I want it to use its presets for quick encoding, which are a balanced trade-off between speed and quality that Don has developed based on what his standards are. So, yes, I'm sort of deferring to Don's knowledge of video and his ability to write the tool. And um, the thing I'm working on now is actually comparing 
comparing how Handbrake and Transcode Video do in terms of the actual video quality with all these various presets. And it's very interesting, but I have not been disappointed in my results from Transcode Video. Um, you specify the output format. I use MP4. You could do some other form if you want. And then you point it to the MKV file. So I've seen both MP4 and M4V. What's the difference? Honestly, I don't believe, and I might be wrong, there is a difference. Uh, what I do, um, I actually change all the file name extensions to M4V because it seems to work better for videos that I'm posting to my website. They play in more browsers if they have M4V extensions than MP4 extensions. The file is identical. The only thing I'm changing is the extension. And, and I think it's tied to the configuration of the, the Apache or whatever web server is running is whether it recognizes MP4 as a video file or just an audio file. It might think it's audio. I'm not positive, but uh, I don't, I, I will not pretend to know the technical answer. I just know that if you switch it between MP4 and M4V, there is no difference in how it behaves on your Mac. It behaves a little better for me when I post them on websites if I post them as M4Vs. So I think I, essentially equivalent is what I would answer. So Don's, Don's tools have a number of settings, basically, and there's quick, there's, uh, you can use target small if you want a tiny file at some expense of, of uh, quality. You can use target big if you want a big file, which will still, just to put it in perspective, dwarf the 40 gigabytes of data that you've copied. It might be 7 to 10, depending on the length of the movie. Um, and then there's, he also has uh, just some non-target settings like very quick and quick, and, and there's only about 10 total to pick from. Uh, but you basically decide what balance of trade-off, file size, speed, and um, quality you want. Right. And when you say big and small, it's not the size of the video itself. It's not the, 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 re the number of pixels of the video. It's the size of the file, which is measured by the bit rate that's used. Now, all of our listeners know about bit rates for music. Low bit rates aren't as good and high bit rates are better. In video, you can't really tell the difference once you get to a certain point, uh, you know, because it's moving, it, it's, it's different, it depends on your TV or what you're watching it on. I personally opt to make larger files because for me, these are archival files. It takes so long to rip and convert one of these things, I don't want to have to redo it. But if you want to rip smaller files because you want to put them, say, on an iPad and be able to put as much as possible, then by all means, you can do it. Now, you can also make both small and big files from the same original MKV. You can run the command twice and end up with two versions if you want. Yeah, and, and by default, Transcode Video won't change the size of the input file. So what, and neither would Handbrake. Whatever you feed it in is what it'll feed out unless you tell it you want a different size output. So if you were if you were you know, putting something together for your iPhone as well as even an iPad, I would probably rescale. There's no reason really to run a 1920 by 1080 source. I mean, my eyes, at least at my age and my eyes, I'm not going to be able to difference between that and something slightly smaller. And you'd save file size and you get more on. But if, for what I do, most of my stuff lives on the Mac 90% of the time. I put very few of them at any one time on my, my iOS devices. So I also use large um, and you just let it run. And in the terminal version, you'll see a bunch of stuff go by on the screen as it's processing. It's the equivalent of a, uh, I won't say it's the equivalent of a progress dialogue because it's not actually a progress dialogue. It's kind of some diagnostic messages. And unless it stops and throws an error, you can just ignore it. And at some point after a few hours of, of turning away, your, your movie will be done and it'll, you'll have your command line prompt back. So... Step five, now that you have your files, what do you do next? Uh, once you're done, you can do whatever you want. You can put it in iTunes. You can create a folder of M4Vs. You could, I don't know. You could put it in your Plex library. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's essentially equivalent now of an iTunes video file without any copy protection. So 
do with it what you like. Okay, so one note is when you add one of these files to iTunes, iTunes automatically treats it as a home video. Yeah. So you need to select the file, press Command-I, click the Options tab, and then the media kind, and change it to either movie or TV show. And if, if you're going to be using it in iTunes, you're probably going to want to add some tags. But I think there are better applications than iTunes for applying tags to video files, right? There's an, a very good app called iFlix. So what you do is you drag the files into iFlix. You'll have to name the file at some point, and then iFlix looks it up on a number of databases and pulls down all the metadata. And you click its button, and it's going to add the metadata. It's going to do a sort of a file conversion that really doesn't convert the file, but sort of rewrites it. And you can have it automatically add to your iTunes library. It'll set the media kind to movie or TV shows. Um, if you do rip a lot, I find this a really good tool. So in the example in your article, as I said, you ripped the um, Blu-ray of the Hamlet that you saw when you came and visited here. This is just under three hours. How much space does it take up? Uh, my final file was just over six gigabytes. So what's that, a savings of 75% on the 40 to 50 start? And this is a three-hour show, so this is longer than a typical movie. Mine came out to 7.37 gigabytes. I did mine in Handbrake. You did yours with the transcode video tools. So you've got a little bit smaller file than I do. But I don't really consider that a gigabyte is a big deal when we're talking about files that size one way or another. Personally, I prefer using Handbrake because it's easier to use. You select a file and you click a button. Now, as we speak here, Handbrake only recently came out with its version 1.0. It was in beta for years, and the new version has a whole lot of presets in it that you can choose for file size or speed or quality and all that. Um, uh, Rob's been um, obsessively comparing file sizes and speeds and all that, and he's going to be posting something maybe before this show posts, and if so, link in the show notes. Um, again, it's a question of whether you want to work with the command line or want to work with Handbrake. If you're used to using Handbrake um, and you're comfortable with it, then you might want to try it that way. Um, but again, if, if it's six gigabytes or seven, it's not that much of a difference. Right. And I wasn't, I, I'm, I'm with you. I don't necessarily, I don't target a certain file size. I'm more interested in the quality side. Although I, what I don't want is I don't want a 15 gigabyte movie file. So anywhere under 10, I, I'm fairly happy. So uh, this, I just use the default options and I can't remember if I use target big or if I used uh, normal, but um, it came out at six and I've watched it. I've watched parts of it. I'm trying to convince my wife to watch the whole thing and I haven't got it done yet, but we will. Um, so it looks, it looks great on the big TV. It looks great on the iMac. Okay. So this has been really interesting. If anyone out there is interested in digitizing their video collection, and I, I strongly recommend it. It's a lot more flexible. Have a look at these articles, whether it's Blu-rays or DVDs, because Handbrake can do DVDs and you basically just insert the DVD in your drive and you select it in Handbrake and you choose a preset and click a button. Obviously, a DVD is much quicker because there's less data and the files are a lot smaller. Just one final word is, you know, we both talked about how long this takes. Make sure you back up all of your um, movies that you rip and then make sure you back it up again just in case. <laughs> because imagine if you'd ripped 100 Blu-rays and, and this is, you know, weeks of work to get this back. Yep. You can get, you can get a four terabyte portable hard drive, self-powered USB for what, 125 bucks or something? By all means, you know, if you if you can afford enough Blu-rays that you're going to rip a lot of them, buy one of these drives, buy two of them, back up your stuff. Yeah, I fully agree. And so thank you very much, Rob, for joining us and explaining this. I hope that many of our listeners will take advantage of this and start ripping their own video collections. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, I'm old school, but uh, I like owning my stuff. <laughs> It is at this part of the program that we'd like to present our next tracks, the music that we'll be listening to next. Kirk, what have you got? 
My next track this week is King Crimson. It's not a single album or a single song. It's a whole lot of King Crimson. My listening style sometimes, particularly when I'm working hard on a project, is to select an artist and listen to a lot of their music. And what I've been doing the past week or so, I'm updating a book, is I've been listening to a lot of King Crimson. I really like the first seven King Crimson albums. I think technically this is King Crimson 1 and King Crimson 2 in terms of sort of global lineups. The first seven albums are In the Court of the Crimson King, In the Wake of Poseidon, Lizards, Islands, Locks, Tongue and Aspects, Starless and Bible Black, and Red. It's really interesting to listen to this because it kind of bookends with, in my opinion, King Crimson's two best songs, the first one being 21st Century Schizoid Man and the last one being Starless, which is, Starless, in my opinion, is one of my top 10 songs of all time. And listening to the changes that King Crimson went through, 21st Century Schizoid Man is a loud song. And then the next song, I Talk to the Wind, is slow with triangles and flutes and all that. And then there's things like in Lizard, which are jazzy, and Locke's Tongue and Aspic, which is sort of new jazz improvisation. And you hear the wide variety of music that Robert Fripp plays. Robert Fripp was the leader of the band. And it's a fascinating period in the five years from 1969 to 1974. You can't stream King Crimson. They're one of the last bands to hold out against the corporate overlords. So you've got to buy their albums. And, you know, if you really want some good 60s, 70s music, you can't go wrong with these seven albums. So I'm going to pick King Crimson. I'll link to the last of the albums read in the show notes and you can find the others. What about you, Doug? What are you listening to this week? January 27th, which is the day we are releasing this podcast, happens to be the 30th anniversary of the release of Public Image Limited's fifth album called Album or Compact Disc or Cassette, depending on the format you bought it on. I also have the 12-inch single from Album. 30 years isn't exactly a great anniversary date, and this is not exactly a great Public Image Limited album, if there is such a thing. But it was the first Pill album I could listen to all the way through more than once or twice. John Lydon hooked up with avant-garde producer and bass player Bill Laswell for this record, and also employed a bunch of uh, uncredited studio musicians, although we do know that Steve Vai and Ginger Baker, of all people, are featured prominently. Album is actually quite accessible, really, melodic even, and is fairly obviously an attempt to get some radio airplay. One of the songs, Rise, actually was a minor hit back in 1987. I really like the sound of this record, great Bill Laswell production, and when Lydon isn't doing his stream of consciousness vocalizing, there's some pretty good things that come together here. Not perfect, but not bad. Happy anniversary, Public Image Limited Album is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.